Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Po Room of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Greg Sessick from the Programs Department. Um, a copy of the library newsletter, Compass, is on the back table. Uh, please feel free to take one if you like. Uh, if you'd like to sign up to receive them either mailed or uh, through email, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, or visit our website, prattlibrary.org. Also, if you could silence your cell phones, I would appreciate that. And special thanks to C-SPAN Book TV for being here tonight to film our program. Uh, we're lucky to have George Liebman with us tonight. George is an attorney in private practice and an historian specializing in American and international diplomatic history. His publications include Diplomacy Between the Wars, Five Diplomats, and The Shaping of the Modern World. Tonight, he's here to talk to us about his new book about U.S. Ambassador John Negroponte. Welcome, George. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the book is called uh, The Last American Diplomat, not because John Negroponte was in any literal sense the last American diplomat, but because uh, in some respects he's the last uh, diplomat of a type and of a generation. Um, he entered the Foreign Service uh, immediately on graduation from Yale. His education was essentially in the humanities, not in international relations theory. He thought that the most valuable course he took in college was a course in economic geography, which is not taught anymore either in colleges or in high schools. He was required as a Yale government major to take a course in uh, dealing with the English civil service. Uh, no one pays any attention anymore to English constitutional history. Uh, and uh, when he entered the Foreign Service, um, his first assignment uh, was uh, in Hong Kong in 1960. In Hong Kong in 1960, and it's hard to remember this, uh, was uh, a place that existed in almost, title, in, in almost total isolation from China. Uh, there were millions of refugees in Hong Kong, but no American could go to China, and uh, there was no trade. Uh, it was a listening post, but not a very informative one. But the experience that he had there uh, used to be typical of the experience that Foreign Service officers had. Uh, he was assigned to interview visa applicants. He learned at least rudimentary Mandarin Chinese. And it was undoubtedly a broadening experience for a graduate of Exeter and Yale uh, to suddenly find himself uh, interrogating uh, impoverished and desperate people. Uh, and it is an experience which the denizens of Washington think tanks these days haven't had. And it produces, uh, I would think, less certitude and more humanity than we see uh, on the part of those who uh, think that they are uh, entitled to make foreign policy in Washington. Uh, I was not close to John Negroponte during that period, 
We grew up in the same apartment building. We were very close childhood friends until about the age of 10. We went off in completely different directions, and I didn't see him for 50 years. And I then saw him when my mother saw his mother's obituary in a newspaper when she was in her 80s. And she said, well, he was always a nice boy, and I have found that uh, at my age uh, I wouldn't have any friends if I hadn't tried to renew all acquaintance, old acquaintances because they have a tendency to die off when you get into your 70s and 80s. So I looked him up. He was then outside of government at McGraw-Hill. And one thing led to another, and there came a time when we were having lunch when he said something uh, that suggested to me that he might not be adverse to having someone write about his career, although he hadn't kept a diary and uh, uh, hadn't undertaken to write anything uh, himself. Uh, and I thought, having written an earlier book about diplomats of the 20s and 30s, that his life would be a good way of telling the story of American foreign policy during the last 50 years, which is what I've tried to do in this book. His uh, sojourn in Hong Kong, as I've said, was uneventful. The leading foreign policy issue with Hong Kong at that time uh, concerned uh, textile imports. The uh, Kennedy administration was not happy at the volume of Hong Kong textile imports, and Kennedy complained to Prime Minister McMillan about it. And McMillan's answer was a very good one. He said, uh, uh, we used to have the same problem. We sold all... Uh, all this textile machinery to India, and India promptly took away our markets. And we decided the only thing to do about it was to try to educate our population so they could produce and sell other things, which in Britain's case was and is um, invisible exports, banking, insurance, law, accounting, academia, publishing, and so on where the British still uh, probably lead the world and almost certainly lead us. Uh, but with respect, um, this Hong Kong period was uh, merely an interlude, and Negroponte, uh, like most American foreign service officers during the Johnson administration, was then assigned to serve for a period in Vietnam and he went to language school for nine months and became, by most accounts, the second best Vietnamese speaker in the Foreign Service, which gives you some idea of how inadequate language training is in the Foreign Service. Uh, he, uh, he had a gift for languages. He had grown up in a household where French, Greek, and English were spoken more or less interchangeably. But nonetheless, uh, he was sent, uh, his, his assignment for the first two years in Vietnam uh, was to work with a group presided over by a famous diplomat named Philip Habib. And there was a group of about eight or ten Americans, the best known of whom was Richard Holbrook, uh, whose job was to go out into the Vietnamese provinces and uh, 
make assessments of the political situation in each province. And these assessments were essentially the only objective assessments that anyone made at that time. The Defense Department people were fond of proclaiming that what they were doing was a great success and the prosperity was just around the corner. The people from the Agency for International Development who devoted themselves to giving away rice, tin roofs, and, and cinder blocks similarly uh, were proud of the way they were winning the hearts and minds of the people. The State Department people uh, didn't really have a dog in that fight. They were not delivering programs. They were just observing. And what they observed, and they were all pretty much in agreement about this, was that there were dramatic differences between the provinces of in South Vietnam. And the most pronounced differences depended upon the religious composition of the population and how many of the people there had been refugees from the north. When the French got out of North Vietnam, there was a massacre of about 50,000 Catholics. And they, this was followed by a flight to the south of more than a million Catholics. Uh, and the United States played a considerable part in helping evacuate them to the south, which led Senator George Aiken, uh, who was best known for his later recommendation that the United States should declare victory and go home, uh, to pithily observe that... Uh, no good deed goes unpunished because the effect of having uh, this very large northern population consisting mostly of Catholics in the South was to create a condition in which the government of the South was almost entirely in the hands of northern Catholics. And the, the, the provinces with a large Catholic population were pro-government and the provinces that didn't have a large northern Catholic population were at best neutralist, and you will recall the demonstrations by the Buddhists, the people immolating themselves, and so forth. So the, the recommendations of the... Negroponte was a pessimist and a dove for the early part of his stay in Vietnam, he then was assigned to observe the Vietnamese Constituent Assembly. And he thought that the trouble with the Constituent Assembly was that the Constitution that it recommended essentially gave all power to the president. And this, was, this um, tendency was aggravated by the policy of the American embassy uh, throughout our involvement in Vietnam uh, the chief objective of American policy as far as, as, far as uh, domestic Vietnamese politics were concerned was to avoid a situation in which there was a division in the South Vietnamese military. There were two elections that took place in South Vietnam. In the first of these, uh, the logical rivals were Thieu, who was a Catholic, albeit a Southern Catholic, and Marshall Key, who was at least a nominal Buddhist. Marshall Key, who you may remember, was a rather colorful character who was known to the population as Mr. Mustache. Uh, the embassy rather obviously favored Thieu, 
And the result was there was an election in which there was a ticket and Key accepted the vice presidency. So it wasn't much of an election. It was a foregone conclusion. The second Vietnamese election, the same thing took place. Uh, there was a possible candidacy of General Mean, otherwise known as Big Mean. Uh, and the embassy um, discouraged it, and ultimately there was an election in which the army candidate, Thieu, opposed uh, some rather uh, underfinanced Vietnamese civilians with the result that might have been expected. Uh, after this first part of his tenure in Vietnam, which lasted for about four years, uh, Negroponte was then assigned to work at the Paris Peace Conference. And he did not like this assignment much um, because his view and that of Anthony Lake and various other uh, people uh, on the American side was that as long as the United States was withdrawing troops, which it then was committed to do beginning in the last year of the Johnson administration, uh, the, Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese had no incentive to negotiate a serious agreement. And uh, Negroponte had the job of being an interpreter during the day and writing long dispatches to Washington at night, which he found rather exhausting. And after a couple of years of this, uh, he was given a um, sabbatical and spent nine months at the Hoover Institution in Stanford as the diplomat in residence. And while at the Hoover Institution, he wrote four or five papers that really are the most important and in some respects the only expressions of his personal point of view as to these matters. And his essential view about the Vietnam War was that um, the United States could not possibly succeed because it was fighting a limited war which presented no existential threat to the North Vietnamese government, whereas the North Vietnamese were fighting an unlimited war in which they could command all their resources for the purpose of taking over the South. Uh, the, what was going on was, of course, exacerbated by the rather extraordinary analysis of the situation on the part of the American commander, uh, General Westmoreland, who thought that the United States, because it was a much bigger country, could win a war of attrition. And his view was that the United States could kill two or three Vietnamese for each lost American. And there would come a time, if it did this for long enough, when the Vietnamese would have to give up. Well, of course, it worked in, in reverse. There came a time when the United States uh, had to give up. But the turning point in many ways in Vietnam, but a very misunderstood turning point, was the Tet Offensive of the North Vietnamese in 1968, when they managed to penetrate the walls of the American embassy. And the reaction in this country was that this whole thing is no good, and we have to get out, and it's hopeless. But what happened in Vietnam was rather different, because the the Vietnamese guerrillas in the south came out of hiding and were more or less uh, massacred by the Americans in South Vietnamese. There was no significant guerrilla presence in the south after the Tet Offensive. Uh, 
the North Vietnamese, when they occupied the city of Hue, um, massacred several thousand Buddhist leaders, which did not endear them to the Buddhist population in the South. And the Buddhists, instead of being neutral, then began to support the South Vietnamese uh, government. And then finally, the other major change that took place at the time of the Tet Offensive was that Westmoreland uh, was replaced by General Creighton Abrams. Westmoreland's philosophy was that the American troops should be in the front lines and the South Vietnamese army, which the French had trained, wasn't good for anything and were just used in the rear echelon. Uh, so no effort, no serious effort was made during Westmoreland's tenure <coughs> to train the South Vietnamese. And Abrams, of course, undertook Vietnamization and trained the South Vietnamese army and did so quite successfully. Uh, the only flaw in what was done was that while the enlisted men were well trained, the, officers co- the officer corps was appointed in Saigon and not very wisely appointed. Later when Negroponte was ambassador to Iraq. He worked rather hard at getting uh, training for the Iraqi generals. Uh, And this was in part a reflection of his experience in Vietnam. But in any event, um, what then transpired was um, the most, probably the most dramatic episode in in Negroponte's career. Uh, When uh, the new administration came to power, Uh, Kissinger uh, proposed a bombing campaign which, unlike previous bombing campaigns, would seriously attack the Hanoi rail yards and would include a blockade of the port of Haiphong. And much to Kissinger's surprise, Negroponte, who had opposed all the tactical bombing that had previously taken place on the ground that it had no effect except to alienate the South Vietnamese, supported this strategic bombing on the theory that it, for the first time, the United States was presenting an existential threat to the North Vietnamese government. The war at that point had ceased to be a guerrilla war. It had become a conventional war. The North Vietnamese needed supplies from China and the Soviet Union, and uh, what was being done interdicted those supplies. Uh, This came to a peak at the time of the so-called Christmas bombing in 73, but the Christmas bombing had been preceded by uh, Nixon's opening to China and his visits first with uh, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai and then later with Uh, Brezhnev in the Soviet Union. And Negroponte was present uh, in connection with both those visits and was rather shocked when um, Kissinger uh, put on the table what was called the leopard skin plan, which would provide for a peace agreement which would allow the North Vietnamese to retain troops in the South. Negroponte thought Uh, that that was absolutely fatal to any chance of survival of the South Vietnamese government because instead of having a relatively short frontier of 100 miles or so to defend, 
they would be presented with a frontier that was really a thousand or more miles long. Uh, and this was a view that was shared by uh, uh, General uh, Sir Robert Thompson, who had been the British uh, commander in Malaya and who was an advisor to the Nixon administration. But the terms on which the war was settled allowed the North Vietnamese to retain troops in the South. And uh, the terms were quite different from those which had been secured by the French at the end of the French War, which resulted in the withdrawal of, of uh, the North Vietnamese troops from, from the South. And they were also quite different from the terms that were secured by Syngman Rhee at the time of the settlement of the Korean War in 1953, when the Chinese were required to withdraw from the country as part of the peace agreement. So Negroponte was quite disillusioned by the Paris Agreement. He made clear to Kissinger he didn't agree with it. He attended the initialing of it, but refused to go to Hanoi for the signing. Um, and there were stories that appeared in American newspapers, notably the Washington Post, uh, which disclosed his point of view, which was also the point of view of Alexander Haig, uh, who was Kissinger's deputy. Um, Kissinger, Kissinger didn't blame Negroponte for these disclosures because they obviously came from Haig. But later on, about a year later, um, Kissinger, uh, Negroponte gave an interview to Tad Sulk of the uh, New York Times, which wasn't published until a year after that, uh, until roughly 1974. And that interview um, was sort of the last straw in the relationship between Kissinger and Negroponte. Um, uh, Negroponte didn't want to work for Kissinger any longer, uh, and uh, he asked for reassignment, and uh, he was reassigned. He was just told to take potluck in the foreign service pool, and he went from being the um, head of the Vietnam desk at the State Department at the age of about 34, uh, dealing with the most serious of foreign policy pro problems, uh, and instead found himself the number three man in Quito, Ecuador, where the most serious problems involved uh, conflicts over tuna fishing. Well, he made a success of his tenure in Ecuador because he rather rapidly decided that the South American countries that wanted uh, wider fishing limits, wider, uh, wider powers of regulation over coastal fisheries, were basically right. Uh, what had happened until that time was that the Soviet and Japanese fishing trawlers came up to the three-mile limit and essentially sucked up enormous quantities of fish, which had a rather bad effect from a conservation viewpoint. And when the coastal countries were allowed to regulate fishing up to 200 miles, which was the ultimate arrangement reached in the Law of the Sea Treaty, the problems presented by the trawler fleets were greatly diminished. Uh, after Ecuador, however, there was another rather curious episode that revealed the extent of his differences with Kissinger. Uh, he uh, 
had arranged that his next assignment would be as deputy to Kenneth Rush, who was a very prominent uh, Republican diplomatic appointee who had just been named ambassador to France, and Negroponte was to be his special assistant. And he learned that Kissinger was on his way to Washington, and he wrote Kissinger and said, I haven't seen you in several years, uh, and I want to talk to you about uh, this terrible defamation that the CIA is being subjected to in Latin America, uh, uh, in which all kinds of accusations are being made about its nefarious activities by people like Victor Marchetti and a couple of other people who had written books at that time. And this was a rather naive thing to, to say because at that point Kissinger, uh, according to many later accounts, was up to his ears in the Chilean coup d'etat. So far from seeing Negroponte, uh, Kissinger sent word to his then deputy, Lawrence Eagleburger, who later became Secretary of State, that I don't want Negroponte assigned anywhere where I might meet him. <laughs> and Eagleburger said, well, um, uh, Mr. Secretary, there's an agreement with the Foreign Service Association that once someone's been assigned, the only way of changing the assignment is to abolish uh, his position and to which Kissinger's rejoinder was, well, abolish it then, which is what happened. And, and Negroponte was again relegated to the Foreign Service pool and was offered the job of Consul General in Izmir, Turkey. The then um, ambassador to Turkey, William McComer, uh, quite understandably took the view that uh, assigning someone of Greek extraction to the scene of the Smyrna massacre in 1922 uh, might not be well received by the Turks. So Negroponte instead was assigned as consul general in Thessaloniki, not the most intellectually stimulating job for someone whose family had its roots in the Greek uh, shipping industry. Uh, after his tenure in Thessaloniki, where he uh, got married, uh, he then received another rather a minor assignment uh, during the Kissinger era as Assistant Secretary of State for Fisheries. Uh, the fishing industry is not a big factor in the American economy. Uh, it amounts to about $6 billion a year in an $18 trillion economy. But he negotiated some fishing treaties and he wrote a paper which provided the basis of American policy in all the subsequent Law of the Sea negotiations and the Law of the Sea Treaty has been ratified by virtually everyone except the United States, uh, and Negroponte has strongly urged its ratification by the United States, which has been prevented by people who think that our naval superiority is so overwhelming and will be so permanent that we have no need of a treaty. Um, when one reflects on what happened to British naval superiority at the beginning of the Second World War, when it was technologically nullified by the new, the new capacities of bombers, um, the wisdom of this uh, appears questionable. But in any event, uh, Negroponte uh, uh, had this uh, fisheries and law of the sea assignment, and then with the end of the Nixon and Ford administrations, 
Uh, he got out of purgatory because his friend Richard Holbrook, uh, who had left the government, uh, came back as assistant secretary uh, for Far Eastern Affairs, and Negroponte at that point became his deputy. And what then transpired is something that is still rather unappreciated in this country, and that is the the role of um, some people who had been second and third level foreign service officers in providing for the relief of Indo-Chinese refugees. There were approximately two million Indo-Chinese refugees um, who were able to emigrate in the 70s and 80s. And uh, the foreign service officers who had served in Vietnam and who promoted this emigration uh, were successful in arranging for the setting up of three reception camps, all in countries which did not receive Vietnamese refugees, one in, Phil in the Philippines, one in Malaysia, and one in Thailand. These reception camps were financed by another country that didn't receive refugees, namely Japan. And the two million refugees that passed through them in over a period of 10 or 12 years were received approximately half by the United States and half in roughly equal shares by Australia, Canada, and France, which made a which involved a radical change in the immigration policies of both Australia and Canada, which previously had been limited to the receipt of white immigrants. But the reception of a million Vietnamese refugees by the United States was almost a political miracle because at that time, uh, this country was very hard even on its veterans of Vietnam, let alone refugees from Vietnam. Most public opinion polls showed that something like 70% of the population didn't favor uh, the reception of uh, refugees in large numbers. And it was accomplished politically uh, largely because the then chairman of the relevant House subcommittee, uh, Congressman Solars of Brooklyn, was strongly in favor of the program. Uh, there was no vociferous opponent of it in the Senate and both the Ford and Carter administrations, uh, particularly Julia Taft, who was the Assistant Secretary for Refugees in the Ford administration and later in the Reagan administration, were very supportive of this development. If one diplomat has to be given credit for it, that diplomat would probably be Holbrook. But Negroponte played an important role in giving congressional testimony. And Negroponte's... Uh, Deputy, uh, actually the, the Assistant Secretary for Refugees, uh, uh, later served as uh, the Deputy Chief of Mission under Negroponte <coughs> in Honduras. With the end of um, the Carter administration, um, Negroponte served for a, time, for a relatively short time as Colin Powell's deputy at the National Security Co uh, Council, which... Um, um, meant that Powell as well as Haig became one of his patrons in his later career. And then with the start of the Reagan administration, he embarked on the most controversial portion of his career as ambassador to Honduras. And there's been a good deal of misunderstanding 
out Honduras. Uh, the Honduran uh, government um, uh, had, uh, as the chief of staff of the army at the time, uh, I'm sorry, the head of intelligence of the army at the time Negroponte arrived, a uh, Colonel Alvarez, uh, who became a favorite of the Americans because unlike most of the Honduran military, who fundamentally couldn't have cared less about communism or anti-communism. General Alvarez uh, had religion on this subject. He had been trained by the Argentine junta. He had the ideology of the Argentine junta. And uh, uh, he also uh, was not a Catholic. He was an evangelical. He was a disciple of the Reverend Sun Moon, Uh, and uh, a very militant uh, anti-communist. In the last several months of the Carter administration, um, there was a rather dramatic shift in American foreign policy all over the world because um, it began to appear that the Soviet Union uh, was taking a much more aggressive approach to developments in the Third World. Uh, there had been the, of course, uh, invasion of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, there was the assistance to uh, Cuban forces in Angola. There were even some Russian troops in the Horn of Africa. Uh, there was, um, you know, involvement in the Congo, and the Carter administration, in its last days, began to push back against this. The uh, General Alvarez in Honduras was responsible for the disappearance of several opposition leaders, and this took place not during the Reagan administration after Negroponte's arrival, but actually prior to it. Uh, There were two cases that went to the Inter-American Human Rights Court that arose during the Carter administration, and uh, where it was quite clear that the Honduran government uh, was not paying too much regard to the civil liberties of its opponents. Uh, Immediately after Negroponte's arrival as ambassador, the Honduran rebels had been successful in blowing up the power plant that served Tegucigalpa and about half the country, plunging half the country into darkness for a period of about two weeks with people dying in hospitals, enormous traffic jams, housewives losing their refrigerated meat, and so forth. And Negroponte made himself fairly popular at the outset by arranging for the flying in of substitute power plants and so forth. But the reaction of the Honduran uh, government to this development was about what might have been expected. Um, You may recall that uh, when... uh, a bomb went off in the capital during the later part of the, of the Reagan administration. The response of the government was to seek legislation making the, un, the unlicensed possession of, of explosives a federal offense. Well, when this bomb went off in Tegucigalpa, uh, Honduras had only the most rudimentary criminal code, and while Negroponte urged it to adopt a more modern one than reached some of these inchoate offenses. 
the reaction of the government was simply to round up everybody it suspected and throw away the key. And the number of people who were detained, uh, many if not most of whom were ultimately killed, was not enormous, but it was several hundred people. And this cast a cloud over um, uh, Negroponte's tenure in the eyes of many of his critics in the United States. What is rather peculiar about what happened to his reputation uh, was that what was going on in El Salvador at this time totally dwarfed anything that took place in Honduras. Uh, The American ambassador to El Salvador was a man named Dean Hinton, who was totally forgotten by history. The United States assisted the government of El Salvador, which was headed by Jose Napoleon Duarte, and Duarte in turn um, turned over armaments to death squads that were headed by a man named Roberto Tobison. And in the ensuing civil war, there were something like 100,000 dead Salvadorians, almost all of them on the rebel side. At one point, uh, the army did a sweep through the countryside, and there was a massacre in El Salvador at a village called, I forget the name of the village, but in any event, uh, the ambassador to El Salvador was asked to comment on it and said he didn't think anything untoward had happened. Negroponte was asked to comment on it and said... uh, Well, in fact, there was an unusual flight of refugees across the border, so something must have happened. Elliot Abrams, who was then the assistant secretary in Washington, said, no, no, nothing happened. Finally, uh, Dean Hinton uh, himself got fed up and about several months later uh, declared, publicly declared, that 30,000 people in Salvador had been murdered by the government or by forces allied to the government, and his speech was cleaned up a bit at the State Department after he delivered it, but the effect was that Vice President George Bush, the elder George Bush, was sent to El Salvador to read the riot act to the Salvadorian military with some effect, but the bad press that Negroponte got for what was going on in Honduras uh, really had two sources. Uh, When he was sent to Honduras, there was great controversy within the American government about the wisdom of resistance to the Nicaraguan government in Central America. And there were basically three points of view concerning it. The point of view of people like the outgoing ambassador to Nicaragua, who was a man named Lawrence Pozzolo, and a number of other people, was that uh, this was essentially a civil war. Uh, It was being stoked by both sides. Uh, It was going to go on. It didn't pose a threat to the United States, and it wouldn't come to an end until there was some overarching agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union. And that is ultimately how the Civil Wars ended in roughly 1989 when Baker met with Shevardnadze and it was agreed that both sides would stop hating competing factions in Central America. There was a second faction that Negroponte, I think, can be said to have belonged to, 
that basically favored the Contra War as a way of pushing back at expansionist efforts by the Nicaraguan government, not with a view to overthrowing it, but with a view to containing it. And uh, Negroponte, uh, as ambassador, opposed the idea of American military bases in Honduras and opposed giving the Hondurans uh, offensive weapons. But he did favor aid to the Contras, who were Nicaraguan guerrillas. There was a third, more militant faction, uh, including people, uh, a great many people in Washington, Attorney General Meese, Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Robert Gates, who was uh, head of the CIA, who wanted something very close to direct American military involvement. Gates at one point proposed giving the Nicaraguans an ultimatum, uh, and if they didn't comply with it, uh, bombing their air force, just obliterating their air force, and blockading uh, their ports. Uh, Gates is commonly thought of today as a moderate person, but neither in Vietnam nor in Nicaragua was, was he terribly moderate. Um, there were other people uh, in the administration in Washington who had this very highly charged idea about the importance of Central America, which is what ultimately gave rise to the Iran-Contra affair. Negroponte left Honduras before the Iran-Contra affair blew up. Uh, and his next assignment was as, uh, but while in Honduras, he had been subjected to criticism in the American press, really, uh, for two bad reasons and one good one. The two bad reasons were the, uh, the faction in the State Department that wanted to discredit any, any effort by, to, com to support the Contras. Uh, uh, essentially um, leaked against him and uh, there was a front page story in Newsweek magazine by a reporter named Beth Nesson that portrayed him very early in his tenure as uh, a villain of darkest hue. And this uh, stuck to him for quite a while. And the Nicaraguans, not to be outdone, published a 48-page magazine uh, accusing him of every sin in, in both English and Spanish, accusing him of virtually every sin under the sun. They accused him of supporting the Greek colonels, even though he didn't arrive in Thessaloniki until after they had been overthrown. They accused him of fomenting a coup in Ecuador, even though the coup didn't take place until well after he left. They accused him of sponsoring the Phoenix program in Vietnam, even though he was a political reporting officer who had nothing to do with the military, and so on. But a good deal of all this stuck. And then there was the, the famous episode of the Human Rights Report. Uh, human Rights Reports uh, were a rather new innovation at that time. Congress, in the wake of the Helsinki Agreement, had required uh, the resident ambassadors in each country to write annual reports on the human rights situation there, mainly as a method of pressuring their governments, not as a means of informing Congress. And uh, the uh, report that Necroponte wrote for, for, for Nicaragua in, in, after his first year there was a relatively benign report. 
largely because he did not want to imperil uh, aid to the Honduran government. Uh, the, these reports were rather new at that time, and they were rather strange to most diplomats, uh, because the normal function of a diplomat is to get along with the government to which he is accredited, not to write annual published critiques of it. And in other parts of the world, there were more dramatic problems involving human rights reports. There was a battle royal between Richard Holbrook as the assistant secretary for the Far East and Patricia Dirian, who was the assistant secretary for human rights during the Carter administration, about what the human rights report for China should say. And Holbrook took the view that we were attempting to improve our relations with China after a long lapse and it would be most undiplomatic to write anything terribly offensive about them. And the same issues arose in connection with the reports on Saudi Arabia and Russia, the Soviet Union, now Russia. And uh, ultimately uh, it came to be accepted even by foreign governments that these reports were a peculiar American eccentricity that had to be put up with without taking too much offense. But at that time, that was a good deal less evident. Um, after uh, Honduras, Negroponte became the Assistant Secretary for the Environment, which had been a backwater in the government, but which he made a considerable success of. And I won't go into details on that, but uh, his three major accomplishments were the Montreal Protocol on Ozone, it was the first major international environmental treaty. Um, the two treaties that were signed in the wake of the Chernobyl nuclear accident, one relating to international cooperation in dealing with nuclear accidents and another relating to reporting of them. And finally, uh, the first serious concern shown during the Reagan administration about the AIDS crisis there was a joint memorandum written by Chas Freeman and Negroponte at a time when uh, the Reagan administration was pretty much in denial about the severity of the AIDS crisis, which pointed out that absent some fairly drastic action, uh, the nations of Central Africa would be essentially uh, denuded of middle-aged people within a period of about 10 years if there wasn't some medical retardation of the epidemic. Um, following his assignment as the Assistant Secretary for Environment, uh, and again at the beginning of the uh, first Bush administration, uh, Negroponte became ambassador to Mexico. And um, as ambassador to Mexico, um, he was essentially the promoter and savior of the NAFTA agreement. The NAFTA agreement was not an American initiative. It was an, an initiative of the Salinas government in Mexico. Uh, Mexico's economic problem was that it had a relatively small market for consumer goods because it had a relatively small middle class. And therefore, unless it could export on a large scale, its industries would not achieve the economies of scale necessary to be competitive on an international market. So Mexico went looking for markets, and it first went 
to the common market, to the EU. And Salinas was told by President Mitterrand that if the, Europe, if the Western Europeans were going to make trade concessions to anyone at that point in the late 80s, those concessions would be made to the new nations of Eastern Europe and to Russia, which is what happened, and that the Europeans had other fish to fry and were not going to be worrying very much about Latin America. <coughs> so Salinas, who was an economist and whose cabinet contained probably more American-trained economists than any cabinet in the history of the world, including any American cabinet, uh, then went, then approached the United States and approached Negroponte. And Negroponte supported the idea of a North American free trade agreement and supported it at a time when the U.S. Trade Representative's Office was opposed to it. Uh, the U.S. the Trade Representative's Office was opposed to it because it was trying to promote another set of multilateral agreements like the Kennedy Round and the Doha Round and so forth. These agreements had not come about largely because of the resistance of agricultural countries to them. Uh, Salinas uh, promoted a free trade agreement, and the free trade agreement, in spite of its name, is not a free trade agreement in the 19th century case sense because the essence of a preferential free trade agreement is that uh, the nations that are not parties to it confront an external tariff. So the, uh, these agreements, these bilateral agreements, may or may not promote the ultimate inefficiency. Uh, one effect of the NAFTA agreement was to thus uh, put obstacles in the way of Chinese imports that otherwise wouldn't have existed. But the principal effect of the NAFTA agreement was to promote American agricultural exports to Mexico and to promote um, Mexican manufacturing of things like automobile parts that were exported to the United States. The effects of the NAFTA agreement were much more dramatic than they otherwise would have been because of the doctrinaire nature of the Salinas government. The agreement gave Mexico 10 or 15 years to dismantle its tariffs on American <coughs> corn and soybeans. But the Salinas agreement, the Salinas government on its own, dismantled them essentially at one stroke which drove hundreds of thousands at least of Mexicans off the land, some into large cities in the south of Mexico where they went into industry to everyone's benefit. But many of them fled northward. Uh, the women tended to stop at the border and go to work in maquiladora plants making textiles. The men kept on going and took jobs as illegal immigrants in the American construction agriculture and restaurant industries, and a good many of them uh, in the drug trade. Uh, while this was going on, um, there was the fight in Congress over ratification of the agreement, and everything else was subordinated to the task of getting the agreement ratified. So it was essentially American policy at that time to play down the severity of the growing drug problem, probably to our subsequent sorrow. But the agreement was ultimately ratified. It has been an important agreement uh, for Mexico. Uh, 
it has certainly drawn the two countries much closer together and the political influence has not all been one way because there isn't much doubt that the protest of the Latin American presidents against American drug policy uh, embodied in the report of the Latin American Commission on Drugs and Democracy has probably had more than a little to do with the movement in this country toward deregulation of marijuana. Uh, the NAFTA agreement, uh, for better or worse, is uh, Negroponte's signature achievement because the decision to go ahead with it was made in a very small meeting involving Bush, Baker, Negroponte, and not more than one or two other people. And it was fought through over uh, the ensuing period of two or three years, and it was then followed by a series of bilateral agreements with other countries, including Central American countries, South Korea, uh, that um, have been quite important. Um, passing from Mexico, Negroponte then went to, was assigned to the Philippines in the Clinton administration and then to Panama. Neither of these assignments were um, easy ones because he was being asked to do the impossible, namely secure the agreements of the two governments to the maintenance of American military bases at a time when uh, the two governments were uh, glad to be rid of the vestiges of colonialism. But after uh, his assignment in the Philippines, he left the State Department and went to work for McGraw-Hill because the only assignment that the Clinton administration then offered him was ambassador to Greece, which he did not want. And he came back into government, of course, with the coming of the second Bush administration where he was made ambassador to the UN. He was essentially alone among the higher officials of the Bush administration in voicing opposition to our involvement in the Iraq war before the final decision had been made. Um, Powell's opposition to the war had been widely leaked, but he didn't say anything publicly. Negroponte did. He gave an interview to uh, a reporter for the Washington Post in which he said that if it were up to him, uh, nation building would be no part of our United Nations program and that his experience in Vietnam suggested it wasn't very easy. But of course that viewpoint was disregarded. Uh, Negroponte was successful and it was a considerable diplomatic achievement in getting a unanimous resolution of the United Nations authorizing uh, uh, ordering the Iraqis to permit inspections and he would have favored, at the time the famous second resolution was brought forward, he would have favored given, giving, giving the Iraqis more time. But the folks in Washington uh, had planned an invasion and didn't want the troops sitting around in Iraq during the summer or in Kuwait during the summer, which is a rather poor excuse. And we all know what happened. Uh, Negroponte, while at the UN, also had two other... Uh, significant um, uh, events. Uh, one was uh, the adoption by the UN of a resolution governing the intervention in Iraq 
which recognized the right of the Iraqis to tell the foreign troops to withdraw, which ultimately is what happened. And the second, uh, second accomplishment was the adoption uh, of a resolution that was unanimously adopted by the Security Council, which was the first endorsement by the UN of a two-state solution in Palestine. Um, the uh, Negroponte then volunteered, in effect, to be ambassador to Iraq and inherited a disastrous situation where we had disbanded the Iraqi military and uh, there was a state of essential anarchy. And he presided over um, Iraqi elections, which were um, unfortunate in many ways because they had been organized by Ambassador Bremer to use proportional representation rather than single-member constituencies, which is a virtually guaranteed way of uh, producing parliamentarians who were extremists. Uh, but in any event, he made the best of the elections on the theory that once an Iraqi political class had been created, there, was at least, there were at least personalities who would be in a position to negotiate the competing interests. Uh, he also abandoned any notion that we would be able to produce a swift economic recovery in Iraq his first priority were dealing with Iraq's security problems. And in training an Iraqi army, which was trained, and I find it hard to believe that it is in the state of total collapse that it's represented as being in. Uh, it seems to me that the Shiites are likely to be able to successfully resist the Sunnis at some point. But in any event, uh, his vision of the future of Iraq was that it wasn't going to be easy. Indeed, he told the Bush administration something that it didn't want to hear uh, in roughly 2004, namely that uh, the United States would have to stay for at least another five years uh, for the situation to stabilize. And that is, in effect, what happened. And how successful what he did was uh, remains to be seen. But to the extent there is any chance of a positive outcome. It's due to the fact that there is an Iraqi parliament, that there are somewhat trained security forces. Um, following uh, Iraq, uh, he was given another almost impossible job, and I'm drawing to a close now, uh, as director of national intelligence. And there are uh, something paradoxical about that appointment, because he did not think just as he thought the Iraqi intervention was not a terribly good idea, he didn't think the creation of the Directorate of National Intelligence was a terribly good idea. Uh, he thought it could have the same thing could have been done through informal coordination among the three or four leading agencies. And the creation of the DNI and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was the work not of the Bush administration but of the Democrats who didn't want to be seen as being soft on terrorism and we still live with the consequences of that, uh, those particular uh, decisions. As the director of DNI, he was heavily involved in an intelligence estimate of Iran, which forecast quite accurately that uh, uh, Iran was not going to develop nuclear capability before the end of the, first Bush, uh, the second Bush administration. 
and this was very unpopular with a number of people in Washington, including Vice President Cheney, but it proved to be entirely accurate. He left as Director of National Intelligence um, under circumstances that haven't been fully explained, but uh, his main interest as Director of National Intelligence was in advising the President, who he felt, I think, needed advice at that point. He and Gates and Condoleezza Rice supplanted the influence of people like Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz during the last two years of the second Bush administration. But one consequence of his devoting himself to give the giving of advice was that uh, he had less time to give to management, and he was criticized for this. And whether his replacement was due to the advice that he gave or the need for uh, uh, more management is unclear, but in any event, he accepted the job of Deputy Secretary of State, where uh, his achievements were essentially two. Uh, first, uh, he uh, pressed hard for elections in Pakistan, which ultimately <coughs> were won by the civilian parties, which had the effect of delegitimizing the more extreme Islamists, uh, and uh, even though they were immediately followed by the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, and his second achievement was the deepening of relations with China. Uh, there were several dozen working groups established that hadn't previously existed, that uh, joint meetings of all kinds of American and Chinese officials uh, that were essentially his accomplishment and that of uh, Secretary of the Treasury Paulson, uh, who was very interested also in deepening the relationships with China. And at the close uh, of the of his tenure, he at the close of the second Bush administration, he uh, uh, he almost certainly would have been Secretary of State had uh, Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rice apparently, according to her memoirs, offered to resign in his favor, and was told by the White House that the Bush administration wouldn't uh, do it, so she remained until the end of the administration. So he has retired. He's uh, does consulting work for McLarthy, McLarty and Associates, and he teaches one, one day a week at Yale. I don't think his career is over, it's hard to say. But it does exemplify um, the influence a relatively clear-sighted diplomat can have on a variety of events. And the book, uh, which is, uh, as was said earlier, is called The Last American Diplomat, uh, can be ordered uh, from all sorts of sources, and the paperback edition costs $24 if anyone wants to order it. Uh, I'll now, I'm, I'm now glad to take any questions. I've gone on for too long, but 50 years is a long career, and abbreviate, abbreviating it into 50 minutes isn't too easy. Thank you. Uh, if you have a question to ask, we have about five minutes remaining. If you could come up to the microphone. Thank you. First of all, good evening, very good presentation. I had a question, if Ambassador um, Negroponte, as you know, is still up at Yale once a week, what advice would he give to future uh, students that are involved in studying international relations? And such a complex, with a huge experience of 50 years, what would he say? He could say anything, but what would be his best advice? I don't want to put words into his mouth, and I've tried to be careful about that. Our views don't correspond on all, on all questions. 
I think he would advise them to take courses in economic geography and in history rather than international relations theory. That's the sense I would have. Uh, the, uh, I think he also um, doesn't hold to the view that we are the hyperpower. He has a sense of of history and of the rise and fall of nations and of the limitations on American power. And when he was ambassador to the UN, he, at least in my view, came closer than anyone else who has been there to realizing the original design of the UN as seen by Roosevelt, namely as a, and Churchill and Stalin also, as a concert of the great powers, not as a parliament of the world, but as a means whereby uh, the five permanent members could adjust conflicts, uh, at least conflicts not involving themselves. Uh, and uh, that's a vision that really hasn't prevailed, but he, he, he was on very good terms with the British and French ambassadors and, and the Chinese and Russian ones also. And uh, if it had been left to the uh, to Levitt, Greenstock, and Negroponte, there would not have been an Iraq war. I'm quite sure of that. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Yes. The big one, this one. Um, how, two questions, kind of. How old is he now? That's my first question. He's uh, almost exactly my age. He's 75 or 76. And I thought, it sounds like an Italian name. He's not Italian? No, he's Greek. Negro? Greek, uh, well, his, his family has an interesting background. Uh, they were natives of the island of Chios, which was the scene of a massacre of Greeks by the Ottoman Turks in the 1820s or 1830s that uh, massacred about 90% of the population. Thereafter, they became essentially wandering refugees. The family was in Odessa for a while. It was in Switzerland. Uh, his father wanted to join the Greek diplomatic service, and they wouldn't let him because he'd been educated. He hadn't been educated in Greece. Uh, and his father was a small-scale ship owner who uh, left London at the outbreak of the Second World War and came to, came to New York. Uh, the, uh, his wife, uh, who's a decade or two younger than he is, uh, is an Englishwoman who was the daughter of a quite prominent Anglo-Catholic family uh, and uh, whose, um, whose mother, uh, who was a Belgian aristocrat, had been part of the Belgian resistance during the war and is one of Queen Elizabeth's closest friends. So he has an, an, an interesting family background. The other peculiarity of his family background that's quite remarkable is that um, when he was in Honduras, he and his wife uh, adopted two Honduran children, and after they left Honduras, they adopted three more of them. So he has five adopted Honduran children, uh, some of whom are still in school and college. So he has a interesting, very interesting yeah, family. Because I know a lot about names, it's like a hobby, but I never heard of a Greek name that ended. It sounds like Negro means Italian, is, is black, and Ponte no. is bridge, right? 
Yeah, well, there's a, uh, there's, there is a Negro, Negroponte Street on the Venice Lido, yeah, for what uh, that's worth, yes. Sorry, so. And the second question was, um, I grew up in the Vietnam era, and so it's a lot of bad memories of that time, but uh, I didn't know that the Haiphong, uh, the bombing, we kind of protested, the students protested that, but we didn't, we didn't, what, was it, uh, was it successful to, to, to well, uh, it, this is Negroponte's great frustration that, uh, that um, the, at the time it stopped, the um, North Vietnamese were down to their last three surface-to-air missiles. So they were totally open at that point. I mean, it, was a tur- it would have been a Turkish shoot had it continued. And that's why Negroponte thought that we could have gotten an agreement that uh, would have required uh, withdrawal from South Vietnam. And this was the view of Sir Robert Thompson also, and it was the view of General Haig. Uh, now, in... Um, Kissinger's defense, uh, there there are a few things to be said. One of them is that uh, um, the bombing, that sort of bombing, had been considered earlier during the Johnson administration, and it had not been done. And the reason it hadn't been done was that the memories of the retreat from the Chosen Reservoir in Korea were still fresh, and there was fear that it would provoke Chinese or Russian intervention. And the reason that the bombing was done in 73 and when it wasn't done previously was that both the Chinese and the Russians wanted things from the United States and Kissinger was confident that they would not intervene if we bombed. What the Chinese wanted at that point was protection against the threat that the Russians would bomb their nascent nuclear program. The Chinese were just developing their nuclear program, and there was, uh, the Russians were rumored to want to put a stop to it. And what the Russians wanted at that point uh, primarily was American wheat, which we supplied in large quantities, which they had desperate need of. Now, by the, by the time of the ultimate collapse in 75, both those conditions had uh, disappeared. But there was this rather narrow window of opportunity when uh, we could bomb with impunity and blockade with impunity. So now we're friends with Vietnam, right? Now we're friends with Vietnam. All those no people qu- died. But there's no question that the development of the country is well behind oh, those sure. of the other Southeast Asian countries as a result of 20 years of communism. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thanks. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. We have copies of The Last American Diplomat for sale at the table, and Mr. Lieben will be happy to sign your book up at the table here. Thank you. Thank you.